0: Associate Director of Science Communications at University of Utah Health and host of this episode of U-Rising. Utah has a lot of wide-open spaces that are ideal for stargazing. And if you have a telescope or star app, it's easy to figure out what you're looking at. But these tools may have helped you spot something else in the night sky. Junk. Space junk. Dead satellites and rockets and lots of them. My guest today is Jake Abbott, a professor of mechanical engineering. And we're going to talk about space junk what it is, how it got there, and his idea for how to clean it up. Welcome to You Rising, Jake.
1: Thanks, thanks for having me.
0: Jake, apparently the old saying of what goes up must come down isn't true when it comes to space junk. So what's happening up there and and how much debris is circling the planet?
1: Yeah, it's funny, I think the saying what goes up must come down is actually true. What the problem is, is what goes up doesn't come down. (laughs) And we have to figure out how to get it down.
0: And why is that?
1: Well, if you're up in space, You have a fixed amount of energy if you're an object, and so your orbit is really stable. Um, It might be a circular orbit or it might be an ellipse, but it doesn't really change over time, and it's because there's nothing putting energy into you or taking energy out of you when you're up in space. What we need to do is we need to figure out a way to take energy out of these objects, and when you take energy out of them, they slow down, And the orbit goes into a lower altitude. And as you get into a lower altitude, you start entering where the atmosphere, which is super thin up there, gets a little thicker. And then you start to experience a little drag like you would if you were in your car driving down the freeway. You're very aware of the wind drag on Earth, but up in space, it's thick atmosphere is so thin that it's very faint but it's there and then that takes a little energy out of you and then you slow down a little more and that makes your orbit drop a little lower and now the air gets a little thicker and the process kind of builds on itself and before you know it you're you're down in a point in the atmosphere where the air is thick enough that it the drag is really um, meaningful and the object is going so fast that now it starts getting really hot and it eventually just sort of spirals into space quite rapidly and burns up
0: and burns up, and then we don't need to worry about it falling that's, on
1: us. That's the hope. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of debris circling the planet. Some people, do you have any guess of how much there is? You think you have any intuition for it?
0: Um, I like how do you even measure it? In I know tons? how do you even measure it? Yeah,
1: yeah. So in in objects, there's estimates that there's something like 130 million objects, which is like a a number you can't wrap your head around, really. But that's including really tiny little things, little things that are less than a centimeter in size, really far away, right? If we think about bigger objects, the kind of things we mostly think about, there's about 7,000 active satellites in our orbit that that are currently working. And then there's another something like 30,000, I think, objects that are being tracked by United States government, military. Mm. Uh, it almost looks like, you know, air, air traffic control, where you're tracking these objects as they fly around to keep track of known objects. And these are all objects that are sort of like 10 centimeters and bigger. So you should picture, you know, 10 centimeters is maybe like a baseball. So that size and bigger. And those are things that are in low Earth orbit. And then in geosynchronous orbit, which is actually way farther away from Earth, we can only track things that are like a meter and bigger. So now you're talking about quite big things the size of like a human body and bigger.
0: So things, I mean, are these debris? Are they actual, could there be spy satellites? I mean, you know, just different things that maybe we don't exactly know what they are.
1: It's a whole host of things. So um, this term debris typically gets everything gets lumped into it that means stuff that isn't serving a purpose. So it's satellites that used to work but don't work anymore. It's parts of rocket bodies that were thrown off stages that are just floating around now, just big, huge cylinders of metal. And it's things that have already had the types of accidents that we're trying to avoid where something has crashed into it and it has shattered and blown into a ton of pieces that all flew in different directions and so it's all of these things all together and there and depending on what the object is the kind of interest on how to solve it is different so if you have a satellite that's defunct maybe maybe the solution is to somehow make it have a useful life again so it's not a it's not a salvage operation as much as like a repair operation where some objects were never intended to have any use they're just up there as junk and they have the potential to become lots of junk, and so those are high priority objects that you want to somehow figure out how to get out of orbit. And get out of orbit means burn up in the atmosphere, basically.
0: So do we have to worry about this junk? I mean, are they in a fixed orbit where they're kind of keeping away from each other and other things, or could there be crashes and these things come tumbling down and, you know, we have to cover our heads to watch out?
1: Yeah, the the tumbling down isn't, I think, so much of a problem. Um, most things are small enough that they would burn up before they hit Earth, and most of the Earth is ocean, and then the rest of the Earth that is an ocean is doesn't have people in it. So the chances of you getting hit on the head by something is very low, but there is a real worry that they will crash into each other. And um, not that long ago, the International Space Station actually had to do an evasive maneuver, and they changed their altitude because they saw a piece of debris that was coming that they knew was just going to be a little too close for comfort. And so they changed their altitude and that takes energy, you know, it takes fuel to change your altitude if you're the space station.
0: Watch out. And it's like a
1: bullet, you know?
0: Yeah, right. So it could do real damage. Yeah. It would something like that.
1: Poke a hole in a something that's a sealed environment.
0: And does that happen very often or that was a rare thing?
1: That's a rare thing. But the problem with the way we put things into space at this really rapid rate is that the chances of these sort of things happening is going up and up in an exponential way. And there's a famous um, thing known as the Kessler syndrome. Uh, This scientist named Kessler, he describes a process decades ago in which you will eventually get to the point where there's enough objects that the probability that there will be collisions goes up to the point where it almost becomes a chain reaction that you can't stop, you know.
0: Okay, so that's a big problem. Yeah. So we talked about the possibility of collisions and space debris co- causing collisions. Are, are they causing other tr- troubles too?
1: Well, I have uh, heard indirectly that some of these satellites that are being put up into space are causing problems for telescopes, basically creating light pollution for telescopes. So if you imagine, you know, seeing these Starlink satellites flying overhead, you can see them. They're a bright little light. And in fact, they're like one of the brightest stars in the sky. And so if you're a telescope that's trying to look out into the darkness of space and see very faint things, all of these new satellites are some form of light pollution for you.
0: I was in Capitol Reef camping this summer and it's a dark sky area, designated dark, mm-hmm. dark sky area. So I was looking forward to seeing constellations in the Milky Way. And the first thing I see at night is Starlink, you know, this chain of satellites Mm -hmm. um, put up there by Elon Musk. And it's like, well, that's not really what I came here to see. But, you know, it seems like that's the start of something that's probably going to keep happening a lot more frequently. Yeah. Is that something we need to be concerned about?
1: Well, I think so. I mean, uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but I know that a significant percentage of all of the satellites that are in space, active satellites, are Elon Musk satellites.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. And you—it it is very interesting. I mean, not, not that many years ago, I would sit out and look at the sky and you'd see the space station go around and you'd notice it because it was like the one star that was moving. Mm-hmm. And you could watch it. And if you stayed out all night, you could maybe see it pass you a couple of times, right? A few times. But now, yeah, Starlink, it looks like there's a highway, right? Mm-hmm. One behind the other, behind the other. Yeah, and with each of these, with each of these new additions, there's just more chance something like this can happen. Fortunately, you know, there, the community has decided that anything that's being put into space now has to have a plan to deorbit itself within five years of end of life. Uh, and sometimes that just means operating at such a low altitude that there actually is still a little atmosphere and that atmosphere will slow you down. And if you stop sort of fighting against it, it will nat- the atmosphere will naturally slow the satellite down and burn it up on its own.
0: So there is kind of a regulatory body that's starting to, to look at these things. Yeah,
1: and, and make it be a, sort of a priority that you can't ignore.
0: So in the meantime, you your work um, directly has to do with this issue, and you published a paper describing a, an idea and a technology that could be used to clean up this de- debris. So tell us about that idea, the Omnimagnet?
1: Yeah, so the omni-magnet is actually an invention that came from my lab a decade ago. And what an omni-magnet is, is it's a it's a sort of an electromagnetic cube that can make a magnetic field that's pointing in any direction. It makes a dipole field. So if like if you were to hold a little magnet in your hand, the kind of magnet you imagine with a North Pole and a South Pole, the field it makes is a dipole field. The field of the Earth is actually a dipole field also. So if you can picture that magnetic field that such a magnet makes, an omni-magnet is a cube that's really three sets of wires and a core. But what we can do is we can make a field that looks like a dipole field, but it, we can point it in any direction and we can rotate it rapidly without any moving parts. And when we first invented that, I was mostly interested in uses for, in medical robotics hmm. because m- most of my career I've been focused on using magnetic fields to manipulate medical devices. So these would be things that are inside of your body um, like capsules moving through your your intestines or uh, micro robots that are drilling through your brain tissue. I'm still working on those things, but we came to know about this problem of space debris. And I was interested, I've always been interested in the idea of, can you use magnetic fields to manipulate things that people don't think of as magnetic? So it's pretty easy to manipulate a magnet. So the things, when we talk about these medical robot, robots, we're literally putting a magnet, a permanent magnet inside the human body in some way, in a capsule on the end of a catheter. But this stuff in space isn't what you'd consider magnetic. It's mostly all aluminum. And if you if you right now come upon an aluminum object and try and stick a magnet to it, it won't stick to it. It, it like seems like it's not affected by the magnet. But it turns out, and this is something people have known for a long time, if you expose... Any conductive metal, including aluminum, to a time-varying magnetic field. In that moment while the field is changing, the aluminum will experience forces and torques on it, but only while the field is changing. So our idea was basically if we always keep the field changing in some way, and we do that by rotation, if the field is always changing, then we can always be inducing forces and torques on these metals. the first thing we did is we said, okay, are these meaningful forces? They're very small compared to the kinds of magnetic forces we're used to. But it turns out, yes, So when I expose a piece of metal like aluminum to a rotating magnetic dipole field, it will experience forces and torques. And we modeled that very well. And then we sort of invert that model and we say, okay, now we have an object and it's surrounded by these field sources. And I want to generate some specific force and torque on that object. What combinations of things do I need to do from my different magnetic field sources to on average make the force and torque that I want? And then we solved that problem and we've demonstrated that we can actually manipulate non-magnetic objects in our lab using magnetic fields.
0: Interesting. So you're so the idea is that you would be changing the direction of these space debris if we're we're putting the application in there, that, that context. So the,
1: the killer app for us, the thing that Everyone was really excited about is a problem that no one seemed to be able to solve, and it's this problem of what's called detumbling. So, when you come upon an object in space, it has over time this this piece of debris. It has started rotating, and it probably started rotating slowly at first, but then it rotates faster and faster. So now, as you come upon this object, it's woof woof woof, woof rotating, and there's no safe way to reach out and grab it. When you think of these objects, you need to picture fragile objects. These are things that were designed to be light because the weight is hard to get up into space. And they can have uh, antennas sticking off of them and solar cells sticking off of them. And what you don't want to do when you grab the object is break it and create a bunch of space debris, which is the problem you're trying to avoid. And so there's different ideas that people have proposed, largely from the robotics community, of which I'm part, one idea is that you kind of would throw a net over these objects. And another idea is it almost, it. the way I think of it is like how you would sort of try and break, break a wild horse. Like you basically just jump on it and ride it until you get it to settle down. And so the notion is if you can somehow figure out how to grab onto this tumbling object and then just ride it, but you're a little spacecraft that has thrusters on it, then once you've grabbed onto it, you can you can bring it down to a controlled um, motion. But these are all really risky. And so our idea is that you can basically approach this tumbling object and using our magnetic field sources, we can induce a torque That opposes the angular velocity of the object and we just slowly slow it down. And these are small, these are small torques. So, you know, you have to picture long time scales that are very uncomfortable for humans to think about in normal robotic tasks. So, you know, maybe it takes us a day to slow the object down. Maybe it takes us a month to slow the object down. But at some point, we, we slow this object down while also keeping the object centered between our magnets. without going to the details as we try and detumble it it will naturally try and get pushed away from us so we have to actively pull the object back in and that's one of our papers that we've published recently is almost like a kind of real life tractor beam concept where we can reach out with our magnets and pull the object between them so you know we have this I, this conception where we will detumble the object and then once the object isn't spinning anymore Then there's lots of kind of traditional robotic approaches you can use. You can reach out and grab it with a hand, basically.
0: Okay, so the main function is to stop this, well, stop it from tumbling and slow down the speed, I guess. That's our
1: principal task, yeah. Okay, got it. And the task that really no one else has been able to propose a viable solution for.
0: So, Jake, tell, tell me a little bit more about how this works. I'm trying to visualize it. Would there be a, a space mission for every piece of debris, or does one craft go up there and take care of a lot of these things at one time? And, and tell me a little bit more about that process of how it brings it down.
1: Yeah, so uh, you would definitely wouldn't wanna have a, a new craft for every piece of debris. The idea would be that you have these kind of maintenance, robotic maintenance crafts that live in space, and this is their job going from one piece of debris to the next. And you would probably target high high importance targets. So these would be big things that if they ever got crashed into would create lots and lots of debris. So you'd want to bring down the big things first. You wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to be chasing down individual flecks of paint in space. You know? um, and so, yeah, so the idea would be you'd approach an object and... You detumble the object, and once you detumble it, depending on what the type of object is, you do something different. So, for example, maybe it's a satellite that you just want to repair. And repair could be, could even be as simple as like add more fuel. Like some of these, you know, satellites, they use consumable fuels where once you, once you expel all of the, the gas you have, you don't have any jet thrusters anymore. So you want to, you just need to add more fuel to these things. So then you'd repair those objects, and then once they're repaired, they're now not space debris anymore. Other objects, you're, you're ultimately trying to deorbit them, and by one means or another, what that basically means is slow them down. You slow them down, and then they spiral into Earth's atmosphere. And different people have different approaches of how you might slow things down. Like, for example, one idea is you attach what's called an electrodynamic tether and you should sort of imagine like a long rope, I mean, really long, like a kilometer long, that just sort of hangs down and goes down into Earth's atmosphere. And this, this rope is electrically conductive. So as it flies through Earth's atmosphere, it's also flying through Earth's magnetic field. And you're basically figuring out how to transduce that, that physics into a force that will slow you down. But, I mean, if you want to think of something in a very simple way, you could just literally imagine attaching some sort of rocket thruster to the debris that fires backward just to slow it down. And as the object slows down, it will naturally spiral into Earth.
0: Okay, interesting. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about. I mean, things have been shot up into space since 1965. So that's 60 years, and there's that much accumulation of stuff. And only now are we coming up with technologies to actually be able to deal with that. Yeah, it
1: is interesting. And it's uh, at least people have understood it's a priority now. Like I have funding that's coming from the Space Force uh, to work on this. That was specifically, uh, you know, a specific call for universities to partner with companies to work on this problem of space debris. So it's people know it's a problem and there's resources being put into solving it.
0: And so what are some of the companies and institutions that you're collaborating with to get this done. I think there was a maybe a company that saw your paper and automatically thought of this application.
1: Yeah, so in a, just a complete coincidence that really has been great for me. We published this paper in the journal Nature showing that it's possible to manipulate non-magnetic things with magnetic fields. That was very exciting for me to publish that paper, but then coincidentally Just a short time afterward, the Space Force announced this call for companies and universities to partner together together to solve this problem of space debris. And so immediately, a lot of companies reached out to me, actually. And I chose to work with this company, Rogue Space Systems, in New Hampshire on this problem.
0: And so what, I mean, it sounds like there's still a lot that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. I mean, talk about that a little bit. Where, Where does it go from here?
1: yeah so i'm I'm primarily interested in the basic science questions that I can answer in my lab and you know analytically. And then rogue is actually designing the space mission and building the spacecraft that will implement these things that we're developing. And so that's currently where we're at. Rogue is actively designing spacecraft and space missions that will that will use this technology to, Go up and deal with objects.
0: Is there a timeline for launch?
1: Well, I'm I'm scared to speak of the timeline, you know. <laughs> I know they're very motivated to have something happen within just a couple of years. That
0: would be amazing. So
1: it's uh, it's proceeding quickly.
0: Yeah. Well there's definitely a need for it. It's so fascinating to think about all this action that's happening around this yeah. that we're not even aware of. Um, But it's also to think about where this started. I mean, you started in the medical field um, thinking about this and applications for things that are being put in our bodies. You know, I'm wondering, you know, how you went from one to the other, but also kind of is it working the other way around too? Are you learning things from this experience that are going to inform your other work um, in the biomedical field?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. For sure, the things I've learned from the biomedical field have helped me quickly realize these things for space. So far, there's no uh, knowledge going the other way. It turns out this, um, this ability to manipulate non-magnetic metals, it seems to me like space is the place for that to happen. And it's not very interesting on earth uh, for me personally. Although it is used already, this effect is used in recycling Now it's, it's not dexterous the way we do it. Like we can really, you know, push on objects in very controlled directions and torque them to cause them to rotate in very controlled directions. But in recycling, they basically flow trash over spinning magnets and anything that's conductive metal will just get a little push. And it can be enough that Part of your trash falls into one bin as it comes off the conveyor belt and part of your trash gets this push and it jumps a little farther and jumps into a different bin. And this is how you can recycle metals from non-metals. So these physics are used on earth, but in this, this like, um, dexterous approach, you know, robotic approach, space seems to be the place for that.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating. Well, we look forward to hearing how this goes. Uh, we'll, I'll be keeping a close eye on it for sure. And we'll have you back to give us an update.
1: Thanks. Thanks for mark. having me. This was, this was a nice conversation.
0: Well, thank you very much for being my guest on You Rising. Listeners, that's it for today's episode of You Rising. Our executive producer is Brooke Adams, and our technical producer is Robert Nelson. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm Julie Kiefer. Thanks for listening.